This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It's hard to think of Mount Everest as unknown anymore. While it's certainly a challenge to climb the world's tallest mountain, someone with enough time and money has a good chance of making it to the summit. A potential mountaineer can fly into Kathmandu, travel to a well-stocked base camp, be escorted up a well-trodden route by expert Sherpas. There's even Wi-Fi at the peak. The relative ease of climbing Everest is born from almost a century of attempted expeditions up the mountain to determine how high one could go and what routes to take. Even the successful expedition of Norgay and Hillary was built on the efforts of those who came before. And the first expeditions, in 1921-1922, are the subject of Mick Connerfree's Everest 1922, The Epic Story of the First Attempt on the World's Highest Mountain, published by Pegasus Books. Mick tells the story of these very first attempts to climb the mountain, including the difficulties of funding, recruitment, and travel, as well as the climb itself. Mick Connerfree is an award-winning writer and documentary filmmaker. He created the landmark BBC series The Race for Everest to mark the 60th anniversary of the first ascent. His previous books include The Adventurer's Handbook, Everest 953, the winner of the Legimontagne Award, and The Ghosts of K2, which won a U.S. National Outdoor Book Award. In this interview, Mick and I talk about the two expeditions to Everest, including its most famous participant, George Mallory, the scientific controversies around these expeditions, and what makes climbing Everest different today. So, Mick, thank you so much for joining us on the Asian New Books podcast. You know, I, I want to start maybe by reminding listeners of the most famous member of these expeditions, uh, George Mallory, um, you know, I'm, he, he's famous in the history of Everest. He's famous in the history of mountaineering. But those outside of it might have a vague sense of who he was, if anything at all. Um, I guess, in short, who was Mallory and what's his place in the history of Everest? Mallory is very famous because he disappeared on Everest, heading for the summit in 1924. And nobody quite knows whether he got to the top or not. Um, that's been something which people have been debating for uh, 98 years. And uh, there's no sign of it ever being answered quite conclusively. Um, Mallory was a, a very strong um, British climber who, as soon as they decided to make an attempt on Everest, he was the f- first choice. Um, he was a he had ex- an experienced climber who had done a lot in both in England, in Wales, and in, in the Lake District, and also in the Alps. When he first went to Everest in 1921, he hadn't been to the Himalayas before, um, but he quickly um, adapted to it. Um, he, he was a fascinating character because, uh, whereas a lot of the the people who are part of the, the the British team came from a very kind of homogenous background. They were, a lot of them were soldiers. 
Um, a lot of them were very, uh, uh, were, were from a kind of professional upper classes. Um, Mallory was a slightly different kettle of fish. He was a, um, he had his background, he, he was a teacher at a, at a school, um, but in his kind of interests and the friends that he had, they were kind of unusual. He was very much a bohemian. Um, his friend, he had a lot of friends who were artists. He was a socialist. He was, uh, there was an early group of socialists in Britain called the Fabian Society. He was a member of the Fabian Society. Um, he was a very good writer and had ambitions to become a writer. And so he, he was just kind of slightly different from the others. Um, very, very good looking. People fell in love with him all the time, both women and men. And, uh, um, and what also makes him interesting is that though he was in some he had this strange mixture of being both an obsessive climber who really wanted to get to the top of Everest, but also being slightly ambivalent about it and feeling like there were other things that he wanted to do in his life. So whereas uh, um, most of the other people who, as soon as they were invited, leapt at the chance of going to Everest, Mallory always went through a period of, of slight angst where he would think about, do I really want to go? Um, you know, he was uh, very much into teaching. He uh, went from a public school to into adult education, teaching workers. And he was very passionate about that and had lots of ideas about how he was going to change the world. So what's so interesting about him was that he was both obsessed with climbing, but at the same time, he was always very ambivalent about Everest and was always questioning whether it was worth it, should he really go, but ultimately he did. Yeah, you, you note in the book that, you know, the, they keep on trying to invite him to go. And he's always like, oh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, I'm thinking about it. Um, it seems to have driven the organizer of these expeditions um, up the wall at times. I think that, yes, I mean, but at the same time, I think everybody, Mallory's friends told him that, it would be a good expedition to go on and that that if he could be one of the people who got to the summit of Everest first, that that he would be made for life. Um, that was the kind of phrase that his mentor, Jeffrey Winthrop Young used. And once he'd been to Everest in on the reconnaissance expedition in 1921 and then on 1922 for the first attempt, he very much had a kind of possessive sense of the mountain. And so when he was invited to come back in 1924 on the expedition in which he disappeared, uh, he was being very conflicted about it. You know, that on the one hand, he sort of felt, oh, it's my mountain. I've, I've been there twice more than anybody else. I have to go on this expedition. On the other hand, he was thinking, I don't really want to be away from my family. For the last two years, I've been away from my family for, for several months. He had young children, a young wife. And, um, and also he had other interests. So that's what makes him interesting, partly this, this kind of conflict, uh, this sense of sort of tragic destiny that he had, even though he wasn't sure that he should do it, he just felt he had to go. You know, we, we, and, and we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't spend the whole time just talking about Mallory because there are lots of, let's say larger than life personalities on these expeditions. So let's, Let's talk about the expeditions. You know, what was the purpose behind the 21 and 22 expeditions that you talk about in your book? 
British climbers had been trying to get an opportunity to, to go to Everest really since the 19th century, when Everest was first identified as being the, the highest mountain in the world. And, but there was a problem. It was, it lay between Nepal and Tibet. And in those days, neither country allowed foreigners to get in. Um, there was a solitary British resident in um, Kathmandu, but there were no ambassadors, nobody else. Um, in Tibet, uh, uh, it was a forbidden country. There were plenty of missionaries who, in, in the 19th century, had tried to get into Tibet and had been summarily kicked out, basically. So the problem for, for the mountaineers was that, you know, it was essentially a, a question of permission. Forget climbing the mountain. They had to get permission to go there. And uh, so it took a long time with British diplomats approaching uh, um, the uh, the Dalai Lama, who was then the ruler of of Tibet, to to secure permission to go, and uh, so fortunately, in 1920, the Dalai Lama agreed that it could happen, and agreed that there could be two expeditions. The first in 1921, which would be a reconnaissance, because really there were no maps of Everest at all. Nobody really people knew where it was, but they'd only seen it from hundreds of miles away on the plains of India using theodolites and surveying instruments. Um, so nobody had been up close. There were no maps whatsoever. There were no local Tibetan maps, which they could get hold of. Very little local knowledge that they could draw upon. Uh, so they figured that what they had to do, first of all, was to, to go to Tibet and, and find the route to the mountain and then have a look around it and try and work out which, what would be the best approach, how they could best get to the summit. Um, they didn't think there was any chance whatsoever that they could go through Nepal. But when they arrived in um, close to Everest in, from the Tibetan side, Mallory did have a look at the, the uh, Nepal, Nepali side as well, thinking that, well, um, nobody's going to notice if we kind of cross over the border because nobody lives here. Um, but Mallory decided when he had a look at uh, the glaciers on the Nepali side, that it wouldn't be possible to climb from that side and um, that they would make their approach from the Tibetan side. So in 1922, they came back this time round. There was no mapping uh, purpose to the expedition. There was the, the scientific elements had been reduced. They basically wanted to come back to climb it. And, you know, in those days, they really thought they could. They underestimated its difficulty and uh, thought it was perfectly feasible that they would get to the top. And, um, and that's what they tried to do in 1922. So 100 years ago, you had the very first attempts on, on Everest. So I also want to ask kind of how these expeditions were organized. I mean, you spend, you spend time in your book kind of dealing with the, the nitty gritty of um, who's going to sponsor the expedition, getting publicity, getting funding, getting, getting the mountaineers. Um, I guess, could you talk a bit more about how these two expeditions were pulled together um, and also some of the drama that seems to have happened between the various organizers involved. The expeditions were private events, if you like, um, in that there was, although people often talk about them as being imperial adventures, they weren't directly funded by the British government or anything like that. So um, the the sponsors, the, the people who set out the expedition, um, they basically uh, went out and, and tried to raise cash by putting out a public appeal. And they initially went to members of the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society, which were both bodies 
um, which featured a lot of explorers and mountaineers. And they raised quite a lot of money from that, but couldn't raise quite enough. So they, they went to the Times, the newspaper, the Times of London, and they agreed to, to buy the rights to cover the expedition. And then they sold those rights on to other international newspapers. So that's how they kind of raised money, essentially. And um, the people who, unlike today, where, you know, the majority of people who go to Everest, it's a kind of private endeavour. Um, you save up money, you go to a company which offers you a place on an expedition. If you've got sufficient money and a modicum of skill, um, they will say yes. And uh, whereas in, in 1921 and 22, um, there was an organising committee who had to kind of decide whether you were suitable to go. Uh, the organising committee had a little bit of a problem because there was nobody around with sufficient experience, really. And uh, a lot of climbers, a lot of the climbers of the, the uh, earlier part of the century had died during the, the First World War. So they didn't have a massive pool to draw upon. Uh, but they basically kind of selected me members of the Alpine Club, people who are known to them and thought to be good climbers. And uh, and that's how, how they kind of set up the team. But the um, there was a lot of conflict in the on the 1921 and 22 expedition over the one particular choice who there was a, a an Australian called George Finch um, who was living in England at that time and was working at Imperial College and everybody thought he was one of the best climbers in in Europe um, he was Australian but he had gone to school in uh, Switzerland and he learned his climbing in the Alps and uh, but the trouble was he was very different from the other British members of the team who were very kind of pucker, um, public school army kind of type in the main. And Finch was uh, much less compliant than they were, didn't like being told what to do, very assertive, strong personality. And um, because he was a scientist, he became, not, not through desire really, but he became very much associated uh, with the issue of whether or not they should take oxygen. Uh, were, there were several scientists who said that the air was so thin at the summit of Everest that you, no human being could possibly survive. And the only way that you could get there was by taking supplementary oxygen. And because George Finch was uh, the, the only real scientist on the team, he was given the job of organising the, the oxygen attempts. And this caused a lot of conflict because not only was... Finch assertive and slightly different to the others but there were some members of the team and some members of the organizing committee who thought that this was entirely wrong and that, that to take oxygen would be to cheat essentially and so you so this led to a to quite a lot of conflict and in particular Finch argued a lot with the um, a man called Arthur Hinks who was the main organizer or the the secretary of the organizing committee uh, who basically, you know, ran ran the show, and and he and Fink, Hinks, sorry, uh, Finch and Hinks didn't get on at all, and uh, so there was a lot of conflict, a lot of uh, tension on the expedition, and and it, it focused around this issue of of whether they should take oxygen or not. Initially, Mallory um, didn't believe in oxygen; he called it a damnable heresy, and and most of the the team thought that it was it was cheating it was unethical you know getting to the summit of Everest on oxygen wasn't the same as doing it under your own steam only Finch said look you know we've got to be rational about this and we've got to make life easier for ourselves and 
if by taking oxygen it will help us and it help us achieve our goal we've got to do it and um, so that was a, the, the kind of nub of the conflict really um so and and that and also mallory to an extent felt that finch was a rival of his if there was a, a you know the, the the climbing team had um in 1922 it had you know several climbers who were were reasonably well known but none none really of the caliber of finch and and mallory and so they were expected that it would be probably one of them who would get to the top and so there was definitely a sense of rivalry between them uh, but of course when they got to to tibet uh, um, finch initially fell very ill uh, from a, a stomach complaint and it didn't look like he was going to do anything at all that he was and to spend his whole time at Everest just languishing in his tent, you know, very weak, suffering from this terrible stomach bug. Uh, but he rallied and was able to make an attempt immediately after Mallory's ultimately. So, um, so it, there was a lot of the, the kind of, you know, the, the, these in this era, the, the main members of the team were, were, as I say, rather kind of compliant, sort of British school boy ex-schoolboys soldiers they who took orders who did what they were told uh but mallory wasn't cut like that and and certainly finch wasn't and so they were all slightly kicking against the organizers trying to get things done their way and in particular finch was quite an abrasive character although a very talented one as well you know i i wonder if you might because because the discussion about oxygen and the whole feeling that using oxygen was was cheating or i guess unsporting maybe another word for it you know i, I wonder if you might talk a bit more about about the culture of of mountaineering it, you know reading it and not being a mountaineer myself you know reading it, it seems like it, it's a strange mix of um you know hobbyists but also hobbyists who really know what they're doing they're professional in a lot of ways i wonder if i talk about kind of the the culture of mountaineering at the time and maybe if it differed in some ways to how mountaineering, to what mountaineering is like today? Mountaineering as a sport um, began in Europe and was particularly pursued by the British, who were used to, to going to Europe on what they call the Grand Tour, uh, which was where rich middle class and upper class men principally would be sent to Europe to kind of see the sights and uh, whether those were the most famous um, art galleries or the most famous mountains and uh, the British loved sport you know that the in the 19th century late 19th century a lot of the, the the things that we think of as modern sport were created then and the rules of cricket and of rugby and of football uh, were laid down and um, and so it was with mountaineering to an extent that the first club for um, for mountaineers the Alpine Club was set up in London the first magazine for um, alpinists were was also was part of the uh, Alpine Club, and so there was a kind of strong kind of culture. The the people who did it were principally middle class professionals, doctors, lawyers, people who had enough money to have summer holidays. And um, but what what made it interesting and, and and different from other sports was that that they sort of took it very seriously, and and it was a kind of mixed mixing point between aesthetics because there was a lot of um, appreciation of mountain scenery and the beauty of it. There was a certain amount of exploration because frequently they were going to places that other people had, had not been to before or other Europeans hadn't been to before. It was physically very demanding, um, but it was also very risky. 
and and so whereas going out to play cricket or rugby or or, or uh, football that there were certain risks involved but they weren't significant whereas from the earliest days of mountaineering when there was a famous accident on a mountain called the Matterhorn in the Alps when several people died um, it was clear that this was a risk sport and so it's that strange kind of conjunction of aestheticism of risk of exploration uh, which was you know bundled up into mountaineering and, and also the kind of people who did it were were, as I say, from the professional classes, they wrote a lot about it. So from the early days, there was an Alpine journal, there were people writing books about it. This wasn't exclusively British by any means. You know, there, there, were, Alp there were soon Alpine clubs in France and Italy and Germany. But it, it started off um, that whole thing as a sort of formal sport, if you like, in, in Britain. And, and, so I and so this sort of sense of, of fair play and of... Uh, you know, this this was also a kind of period, for example, where they set up the rules for boxing. You know, previously boxing had been a fairly wild, anarchic, anarchic activity. And then Lord Queensbury came along and wanted to, to formalise it and to set up rules. And so, and similarly, there were kind of rules for, for, for mountaineering, but they were informal rules. And and so they were, they were you know, what, what was, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? And so things like, you know, never mind whether you should use uh, oxygen, whether you should use crampons at various points was debated, whether you should use um, little hooks to attach your rope to, you know, what, whether, what was, because the whole kind of sense was that it had to be done in correct style, and correct style generally sort of meant as simple as possible and as difficult as possible, because <laughs> there was a sort of ideology that the harder it was, the better it was. And, um, and so, when when certain scientists began saying, well, let's, you know, you really do need to take oxygen with you. Uh, um, there were these people who said, no, that's that's not sporting. And there's a famous quote from the organizer of the expedition, um, Hinks, where he says, only rotters would use uh, oxygen. And so the very language of it, rotters, it's a sort of public school word. Um, at, whereas now, if you look at uh, Everest, now in terms of the kind of commercial climbing which goes on in, in 2022, virtually everybody uses oxygen and increasingly they use it from lower and lower down the mountain. Whereas in, in the 1920s, you know, they would say, right, well, let's, we'll, we'll get up most of it and only use oxygen for the top bit. But now people use it from lower and lower down the mountain. So it's absolutely a given that, um, you, you, you know, your goal is to get to the top. If this makes it easier and safer for you, let's do it. Uh, whereas in those days, it was this consideration of what was seen as good style. I mean, ultimately, it was climbed on oxygen by Hillary and Tenzing in, in the 1950s. That th th Those debates had gone away by then, and there was a sense of a pressing need to get the job done. Um, but in the 20s, they were still debating it, and that sense of honour, what was the honourable thing to do, what was the, the sporting thing to do. Uh, um, a lot of people thought, well, no, you shouldn't use oxygen because you're cheating. Uh, so that's how the but the debate was a complex debate and there were lots of personalities involved in it and other factors and and, and obviously for a lot of mountaineers uh there was a very pragmatic concern that um that the equipment they had in those days didn't really work very well it was very heavy you're always kind of looking at what the trade-off between the weight of the oxygen set and the boost that it gave you and also the sense that you become vulnerable if you're using it because what happens if it 
gets a blockage or something goes wrong. So a lot of people who said, who objected to it on pragmatic grounds, not on ethical grounds, but um, but that was definitely something which was a feature of, you know, right from the 20s up to the 1950s. And indeed, but now what's interesting is it's, it's sort of changed. And so the world's elite mountaineers take it for granted that they will climb without oxygen. And so Nims Pergel and Reinhold Messner and all, all of the kind of what you think of the both modern European and, and great uh, Nepali climbers, they they do a lot of stuff without oxygen, you know, because it's seen as being, you know, and this is if you want to do it properly, do it without oxygen, you know. Um, but but equally, as I say, you know, most modern commercial climbing is done um, with oxygen. So there's a sort of split, and the split is now that elite climbers think that they want to kind of do it in that the legitimate style of doing it is totally under their own puff. Whereas the people who go on to commercial expeditions, which are the vast majority of people who go to the Himalayas these days, just say, no, look, the equipment works, it's practical, it's safer, we don't want to die, <laughs> let's use it. You know, we so so we've gone so long without actually talking about what it was like on Everest in 1921, 1922. So, I mean, obviously... This was all new to the to the mountaineers. I mean, no one had tried to climb before. None of the routes were known. Um, they had to kind of blaze their own trail and get as far as they could. So, like, what was it actually like on the mountain for for these mountaineers? I think again, probably maybe the way of thinking about it is how different was it then to how it is now. You go to Everest now, you're going to have a, a, a lot of support. You'll have a Sherpas who. Who, who will help you get up the mountain. You will have very advanced equipment, which will keep you warm. You'll have very advanced telecommunications, which will allow you to stay in touch and make phone calls if you want to, or tweet from the summit. Um, you will have very detailed weather information, uh, which will tell you when the safest and most likely time to succeed is uh, um, when you're climbing. 1922, they had none of that whatsoever. Uh, so they're going into a place where they they've only created the first maps in 1921. Uh, um, they have clothing which is good for climbing in Europe, and is good for going deer stalking in Scotland. But only George Finch, the scientist, has got anything which resembles modern clothing, and with a down, uh, having a specially commissioned down coat made for himself and down trousers. Um, but in general, it's a sort of ad hoc mixture of whatever clothes that they, they're all, there's no uniform. You know, by the 1950s, they would have scientists and physiologists working on the best equipment and best possible clothing to use, best possible materials. 1920s, none of that. Um, they're also going into a place where they have no idea about the weather, really. Their great fear is that the monsoon is going to come along and once the monsoon arrives in the Himalayas it makes climbing very dangerous and, and very difficult because there is so much snow but they don't really know when it's going to arrive you know they they talk to local tea planters living in Darjeeling uh, in northern India and and they give them a bit of local knowledge and so they have a sense that it's, it's sometime around the end of May early June that the monsoon arrives so they have to get up um, the mountain before that happens, uh, but they've got no accurate weather forecast. Even in 1924, um, on the second expedition, they thought, oh, well, they had a bright idea that what they would do 
was they would get um, mail or Mallory had a sister who lived in Colombo in, in Sri Lanka and the monsoon hit Sri Lanka first before it reached northern India. And, and so she would give him advance notice by sending a postcard. I mean, it took weeks for postcards to get to base camp. So by the time her letters arrived or a postcard saying, well, it, it looks like it's coming, it was too late. So that, that was a key difference. And then in, also in terms of communicating more generally with the outside world, it was a long, long delay and an unpredictable delay between sending a message from base camp to back to, to London. So life was kind of tough, you know, they didn't have modern high altitude rations. Instead of that, they bought a lot of food from the army and navy stores in, in, in London. Um, they had very basic ideas about nutrition, didn't really understand one of the kind of key modern discoveries that uh, they made in the 1950s was the importance of drinking a lot. But it's always very difficult to drink a lot on a mountain because is, you know, once you get up to a certain altitude, there's no running water. And so all you have to do is melt snow. But in order to melt snow, you have to have a good cooker. And they didn't have very good cookers, uh, had very early primer stoves. So that, you know, for all of the time, they're not eating well, they're not drinking well, they're wearing clothes, um, which are not as warm as modern clothes. Um, there's no communication between base camp and higher up the mountain because they haven't got radios. Um, so it's very, very basic. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they're remarkably tough and resilient people um, who are remar remarkably immured to the cold. And so in 1924, they didn't get to the top, but they got to within a thousand feet of the top. Um, they did even on the very first attempt in 1922, they got remarkably high up the mountain, reaching 27,000 foot, two breaking world altitude records. Um, getting to within 2,000 feet of the summit. So in spite of all the things they lacked, they had a kind of a real toughness and, and uh, a very sort of positive attitude, um, which um, gave them a fighting chance of succeeding. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the British members of the, of the expedition, um, but I do want to make sure I ask a question about um, who the people that were supporting them, you know, the porters, the Sherpas, um, you know, what was their relationship to the British climbers? Um, and kind of how did that relationship build over the expedition? The um, Britain had had a long relationship with Nepal in terms of um, Gurkha soldiers that they'd been fighting for the British army, um, I think since the late 19th century. So there were several people who were on those early expeditions who were officers, British officers in, in Gurkha regiments. And so... Um, although there were a variety of different local languages, there were certain kind of common languages uh, which which enabled them to talk to the um, the people who were working as their porters. Then the porters broke down into kind of two categories. There were basically people who were expected to go high on the mountain, and a lot of those were either Sherpas who were ethnically Nepali but had been living in in Darjeeling. A lot of them going in search of work. Um, and Tibetans, and then there was another group called the Boshas, who were Tibetans who had also migrated to northern India in search of work. And, uh, and so these people were known as being good at high altitude because they, li they lived in Tibet and Nepal at very high altitudes in, in the beginning. But they, they had no interest previously in mountaineering because you're talking about 
cultures which are very poor essentially subsistence cultures subsistence cultures and so there was no history really of of Nepali or Tibetan mountaineering but there's a lot of people who had to live in the mountains and so whether they were working for local merchants or or tilling the fields or, or carrying their own crops around uh, they were used to being at high altitude used to sleeping out in the in the open uh, and so they were very hardy and tough and um, and the British in general liked them and the, the Sherpas and Tibetans liked the British back because they were both kind of, particularly the men, uh, um, were quite macho cultures. And they and the Sherpas in particular were, were very solicitous and very charming and, and good fun to be with. And so right from the early days, you get these quite strong bonds forming between um, the British and the Sherpas, because they kind of, they like them, they, they get on well, they recognise them as being hardworking. And for the Sherpas, for their part, uh, and uh, the other Tibetan porters, you know, that they, uh, they're they a little bit mystified as to what these outsiders really want and why they're, they want to be there, but they're glad to be paid and they're being paid reasonably well by local standards. Um, there are various religious injunctions, which have told them in the past that they shouldn't really be doing this, but they're kind of quite pragmatic people. Um, they, they have no training, formal training in mountaineering. So they're unfamiliar with the, the, the technologies, whether it's ice axes and, um, and uh, crampons or oxygen sets, but they're very quick learners and pick it up very quickly. Um, the British, you know, what's, what, what you have to remember is very different to today, particularly again, going back to this notion of commercial expeditions you know there's been something like i think about 600 ascents this year um on on everest uh, both from the nepali side and from the tibetan side more sherpas have, have made that ascent than clients uh, or than europeans or americans because there's a very high level of support now and so essentially you you could say for a lot of people it is the sherpas and the other high altitude porters who helped them get to the top. Whereas in the 1920s, it, it, you know, the, the British felt a duty of care to, to their porters and, and, you know, very much thought there's a limit to what we can ask of them. What we basically need them to do is carry our gear very high. We recognize that they're much better at that than we are uh, because they seem to be able to adapt to high altitude much better than we do. Uh, but we're not expecting them to take us to the t to the summit. We're not really expecting them to look after us, you know. Whereas now, you know, you're a client on a commercial expedition. The Sherpa is there to assist you, to help you, to make your dream come true. Um, whereas in the in, in the early stages, that wasn't the case because there was no local history of it. Obviously, the thing which makes all of this very difficult was that principally um, the Nepali culture and um, local cultures were oral cultures. They didn't, there are not lots of books. There are no books from giving you the the truth from the Sherpa point of view, really, until till, till very recently. You know, um, Tenzing, who famously climbed Everest in, in 1953, he had a ghost-written autobiography with an American, James Ramsey Alman, who was another very famous Sherpa called Antaki, who again had a ghost-written autobiography. Um, they were both published in the, the 1950s, but before that, there were basically no accounts. You know, there are no written accounts from the Sherpa point of view telling you what it felt like to them. You know, and so all you can get is 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 what the British thought of them and the kind of clues. You know, but 
But I mean, I, I, the, the they were, as I say, the two groups got on very well, and um, you know, the Sherpas were famous for you know drinking a lot and doing a bit of fighting, and the British kind of liked this, and and then the Sherpas equally would be they were big gamblers and. And so they used to gamble on who they thought was going to get to the top. So, you know, they didn't, to both sides, obviously there was a power imbalance in the sense that one was the employer and the other was the employee. But, um, you know, in a kind of remote setting like this, they had to get on with each other. So, um, that, but there was always a distance at the same time, you know, and, and it wasn't until the 30s that you're, for example, that the, the climbers would be sharing their tents with Sherpas in general, Sherpas sleep in one tent, or, and the the climbers sleep in another, you know. Uh, but by the late thirties, that's starting to change, and 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 certainly, you know, is changing now. Um, so, um, so there's a distance, but there's a liking between the two groups. There's not masses of communication because of the language problem, but there's enough for them to get by, um, and a lot of sort of what see, what appears to be a lot of respect from the British side for the Sherpas. So, one last question, I think, and. I'm going to go big picture again. So the 1999, the 21, 22 expeditions are like, they're the first to try to go up Everest. Um, how did those two expeditions set up 1924, 1953, and then the commercial period of Everest we see today? You know, it's kind of the, the beginning of this. It's, it's, it's kind of the beginning of the attempts to climb Everest to kind of conquer the mountain. How does, how did these two expeditions kind of set up the decades of history that that follow i think that you know in the first instance they set up the obsession with everest the, the simple fact that it, it is the only mountain in the world um which has got un, pretty much universal name recognition and the the way that those early british expeditions particularly in the 20s the stories were told the, the way they were disseminated in newspapers the films that were made about them created this idea that Everest was this amazing thing and that heroes climbed it and if you were if you were somebody who succeeded you were kind of heroic and you know and um so so that was the kind of foundation of it and and obviously they kind of blazed the trail because as I say very simple things like uh you know before the 20s there, there were no maps of the area um so nobody knew how to get there by the 1950s after the second world war there was a kind of sense in which um that that a lot of the the battles which began before the second world war um were going to come to a climax and so most of the big mountains of the himalayas um were climbed in the 1950s i think there's maybe one left in the, the early 1960s so you know having struggled so much all these british and american and um italian and german climbers on, on you know on everest and all the other mountains of the himalayas finally in in the 50s they succeeded in in, in climbing them but these were still it was still the kind of era where people thought of as national expeditions you know there, there was a British expedition there was an Italian expedition there was a French expedition you know, and when they got to the summit they usually pulled out a flag of one description or another um, but by the 1970s uh, the there were, there were always kind of problems getting to the Himalayas it was had become much more accessible because uh, though after the Chinese invasion of Tibet, um, Tibet became inaccessible to the West. Nepal, all, at almost the same time, opened its doors to the West. So there were many more people in the Himalayas because they could go in via Nepal. And um, so 
you, you got and gradually this kind of what we've seen everywhere, a kind of democratization of travel. In the 1920s, it took just to get from London, where these people, you know, where some of the climbers were based, to base camp. It took about, uh, you know, about six weeks. Uh, you know, you take a ship across the uh, the Indian Ocean and then you take a train to get to northern India and then you'd have to, to walk or ride on a pony to, to, to base camp, you know, which took a month. Um, but uh, whereas now you can get on a plane, fly into Kathmandu, it's mu it's much more accessible and it's much cheaper. Um, but the world has changed. So rather than having what you think of as these national expeditions where there's a lot of focus on them in the press, uh, where they're seen as, as kind of big, you know, cultural events, it's now much more private. And so uh, for the people who, who've just got up Everest this month, it will be the kind of fulfilment of a life's ambition. It will be a great sense of achievement. It, it, they may, you know, get into the press if they're the oldest person, the youngest person, the first person from from one particular country to do it, um, or just possibly if they're doing it in a very hard way. So, for example, this year, um, Nims Pergil and some Nepali climbers made the first winter ascent of of K2 in the Karakoram Mountains, and this was a great achievement because they nobody had gotten up this mountain in in the winter previously. So. Those are the sort of things which still get into the press. But by and large, these are private affairs, privately funded um, in order to fulfill private ambitions. Whereas in the, the pioneers, uh, there's much more a feeling of kind of stress on them that they've got to get this done, that they've been, the whole thing has been talked up in the press. And, and so therefore they, they need to achieve, they need to succeed. Uh, and so there's much more of a sense of, of, of expectations, whereas now the expectations are private and individual and mean a lot to you, but don't mean a lot to your neighbours or to the rest of, rest of the world. So it's very, very different in that respect. But um, the obsession for Everest was created in those early expeditions. The actual means of getting there was created in terms of people mapping it, working out the best routes. The, the Sherpas um, have become intimately associated with Everest. And so now there's a sort of cadre of high altitude porters who are as good as any Western climber. Um, and um, so, you know, all, that has come from this, these early explorations. So in, in, in lots of ways, it's very like the Alps, you know, in the 19th century, the, a lot of the mountains in the Alps had not been climbed and were thought to be inaccessible and there were, a lot of local superstitions about why you shouldn't do it. Um, but by the, the middle of the 19th century, um, the Alps had famously become the, the, what they called the playground of Europe. Lots of people were going there. Lots of people were climbing Mont Blanc. Lots of people were climbing the Matterhorn, these hitherto thought of as impossible mountains. And there's a similar process that has gone on on Everest and in the Himalayas that they have become the, the playground of, of Asia that, you know, that... that the, the, the only thing really that sort of rules you out these days is lack of money, <laughs> but uh, it's always possible to overcome that one way or another. But that's the principal hurdle. Can you afford to go there? But if you can afford to go there, then it's there's nobody. There's no uh, the difference between mountaineering and other sports, in a sense, is also that there's nobody really telling you what to do. There are, there, there are very few countries. I think they started bringing it in in a little bit in South America where they. You know, before you went up Aconcagua, 
they would check your blood pressure and uh, um, just to make sure that you didn't die, you know, or to, uh, uh, but there were very, there were no rules. I, you know, tomorrow me or you could decide we want to go to Everest. If we could get sufficient money together, we could apply for a permit. We could go out to Kathmandu, we could hire some porters and, or we could kind of sign on with somebody else's expedition and then we could go there and, and nobody can tell us you can't be there, you know? So in the sense that there are kind of, there are no actual rules. It's the freedom of the hills, you know, There's, nobody can stop you from going there. Uh, um, and, and that's again, a kind of unique aspect of it as a sport. It's, it's a very, in a way, as I say, there are sort of certain kind of um, background implicit rules or accepted conventions. But other than that, it's very much about, personal freedom, isn't it? You know. So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Mick Conifery, author of Everest Nights Way 2, the epic story of the first attempt on the world's highest mountain. Mick, I actually have a couple final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? Uh, well, the first question is simple, uh, which is that the book is available um, now, I hope, in, in most bookshops. Uh, um, it has just been released in America this week. It's been out in Britain uh, for about a month and is available in uh, around the world. Obviously, we live in a kind of online age. And so hopefully anybody who wants to get a copy of it can. It's also being translated into other languages. So it should come out in Czech, in Portuguese and Spanish. Um, and in several other languages. So, so hopefully that will make it more accessible. These days, if you don't want to read it, you can listen to it as an audio book. You can read it as an electronic book on your, your Kindle um, or your uh, ebook reader. Um, in terms of what, what's next for me, I'm not 100% sure. I started off writing Everest 1922 because I thought this is a slightly unknown expedition that people, or less covered expedition that people tend to concentrate on the second expedition in 1924 when Mallory disappeared. But having done the kind of research for 1922, I've got this kind of feeling that I kind of need to take it to the end of the story and take these characters who become embroiled in Everest um, to, to the end of their story. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so I'm thinking about doing a follow-up book, but we shall see. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Uh, follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, the Airbnb Podcast is on your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing, support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for more info who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Mick, for joining me today. And thank you for having me. It's been uh, really interesting talking about it. And thank you for the questions. Very good. Mm-hmm.